You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. Some of y'all are excited about hearing about Jesus this morning. I'm so glad to be here. My name is Carla Gerard, and I have the privilege to bring the word to you this morning. And and on this glorious Sunday morning before we celebrate Christmas next Sunday. So we just finished, finished our Gathered to Go series, and today we're going to prepare ourselves as we anticipate what next Sunday means as we celebrate the birth of our King. I want to say it's been a great week here at In Focus Church. This week I sat here on the second row as I watched the Kid Focus Kids present the gospel on stage through their Christmas musical. And weren't they awesome? For those of y'all that got to be here. They did a great job. And I sat here and, and I turned to Brent like every few lines and was like, that is my message for Sunday. They're taking my text for Sunday. That's the point I was going to make for Sunday. I mean, I was just so excited to see the gospel on the stage because kids musicals are more than just a cute thing when they're gospel centered. They celebrate the birth of the king. They remind us of the hope we have as our savior died on the cross to bring us redemption. And they remind us of the completion as he resurrects from the dead and brings us into an eternal home when we surrender our lives to him. So thank you, Kid Focus, for presenting the gospel to us on the stage Wednesday night. I also have had um, another side of my week. That was a glorious side of my week. And another side that I experienced is I stood in FedEx last night for a long, 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 long time to have a packaged mail to one of my friends. There was a lady in front of me and she had, I mean, probably this many gifts that she wanted to ship to a family. And I was trying not to listen, but you know, it's like she's giving out all this personal information to the person. And the people behind me, they're just building up in the line and getting more and more aggravated. And I thought, here this woman is trying to send gifts to bless a family and we can't even wait for 10 minutes. And she turned to all of us and said, I'm so sorry. And I said, no. It's totally fine. It's totally fine because in the hustle and bustle of the season, we'll often think, man, there's no rest for the weary. I've got to get all this done. Except there is rest for the weary, isn't there? There is rest for the weary in Christ. I want to read some of the lyrics that we just sang this morning. I don't know if we all realize what we sing in Christmas carols, in good Christmas carols. (laughs) meaning Christmas carols that are theologically sound, not just some that we might like to sing, or we might hear people humming them all the way through the grocery store. Do they really know what they're humming or singing? Here's what we sang this morning. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies, which was the angels, with angelic hosts proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald, angels sing. And then this one, hail the heaven-born prince of peace, hail the son of righteousness, 
light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings, mild he lays his glory by, born that men no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing. Or what about this? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. It sounds a little different when we're not singing it in a cadence because the truth of God's word is coming out. O come thou wisdom from on high, who orderest all things mightily, to us the path of knowledge show, and teach us in her ways to go. Or what about this? You may not understand this next verse, but you will after the sermon this morning. O come thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny, from depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory over the grave. O come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high, and close the path to misery. O come, thou rod of Jesse's tree, and in sign of thy people be, before the ruler's silent fall, all peoples on thy mercy call. O come, desire of nations, bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad divisions cease, and be thyself our king of peace. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. So this morning what I want to do is I want to connect the dots for you between the Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, and the coming of the king that we read about in the Gospel of Luke and Matthew. I wanna highlight Simeon as he held the Christ child in his arms because I believe Simeon would have stood there and sung new beginnings that we just ended with in that set. This is a day of new beginnings. The old is passing. Change is coming by your spirit. Simeon would have sung that as he held the Christ child because he understood the words of Isaiah that were spoken hundreds of years before as Israel awaited their Messiah, coming king, their deliverer. So just get your Bibles ready this morning. I hope you have a paper Bible. You should always bring your paper, paper Bible to church. I tell my uh, eighth grade girls, I always want to say they're in seventh grade, but they're in eighth grade now. I always tell them that they need to bring their paper Bible every time they come to church. If you don't have one, see me after church and I'll get you one. But we're mostly going to be in the book of Isaiah and the book of Luke. So let's read the Holy Word of God today. If you don't have your paper Bible, you can go to version, and the words will also be on the screen. First we have Luke 1, 26 through 33. I'm gonna put my glasses on because you know, age. Okay, put your glasses on too if you need to wear them. Here we go. These verses will probably be familiar to most of you. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph at the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, "'Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you.' But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. But Mary asked the angel, how can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? And the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Verse 38, see, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Now let's go to chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And then verse 8 In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Will you pray with me? Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that we can see the truth of who you are. I pray this morning that, this, uh, that we would hear the truth, that it would go deep down in our heart that we would have a revelation of who you are, Jesus, that we would be cut to the core and convicted to live more like you and to recognize you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I want to talk about waiting. I just read about three different accounts of people that were having to wait. Mary, she had to wait. Joseph, he was gonna have to wait. And the shepherds, They had to wait as they made a journey from their field to find the Christ child who had just been born. But what do you feel or what do you think of when you hear the word wait? My guess is that most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, don't like to wait. I don't like to wait. I don't like to wait at all. And we live in a culture that says when we want it, we can have it and we want it now. But waiting is a lot about perspective, isn't it? Waiting can seem like an eternity in the following examples. Like when you're trying to do a plank, like a one-minute plank in your gym class. It's pretty awful. A 10-minute plank's pretty awful. Waiting at a red light, that's not fun for most of us, especially the light right out here by the church. It takes like forever. Waiting in a parking lot while someone is crossing in front of you. And this is what we look like, like, yeah, come on, come on. Just take your time. You're taking forever. You're taking forever. Just come on, come on, come on. Or what about waiting on your Amazon Prime delivery that just takes, you know, 48 hours or less after you click, I want this thing, but we don't even want to wait for 48 hours. Or on a more serious note, what about when you're waiting on a healing in yourself or in someone that you love? 
What about when you're waiting on the salvation of a loved one that you might have been praying for for more than half of your life? What about when you're waiting on a relationship to be restored because pain has entered and a breach and betrayal has taken place? Waiting is hard and waiting oftentimes reveals what is really going on inside of us because it brings pressure to our life. It also forces us to look in the mirror and it forces us to sit with ourselves and see who we really are. There is a way to wait that brings glory to God. And there is a way to wait that does not bring glory to God. But we must remember that God always has a purpose when he asks us to wait. So let's think back to the pictures that I just read in Luke that we like to call the Christmas story, or you may have heard in every kid's musical, or you might have seen in almost every Christmas movie that's put out. At some point, ironically, the Christmas story and the birth of Jesus is presented even in movies. Sadly, I think that there are parts of the Christmas story that we've become so familiar with that we've lost the holiness of the moment and what was really going on. The players in the Christmas story were destined for incredible things, and they were also tasked with things that were very difficult or very hard for them. What does it mean for Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and those in the temple to wait on the birth of the Messiah? As I quoted before from the Gospel of Luke, the angel visited Mary, and she was told what was about to go down for her as a young girl, as a virgin, as one who was engaged to be married. She was a young Jewish girl who found favor with God. She would have known the prophecies about the birth of the Messiah, but her knowing and believing these things, even as the angel told them to her, did not mean that those around her knew and believed these things that she was walking through and that she was believing. When the angel met with her, she was anxious and in disbelief, but she responded obediently, didn't she? She said, be it unto me as you have said. And then she hid things in her heart. Thus would begin her wait. She would experience a nine-month wait that would be met with the criticism and the shame from her community as she was an engaged woman who was pregnant. Her wait was one of faith. Now let's look at Joseph. I read Joseph's account from Luke, but Matthew also has an account of Joseph. And here's what we can um, reason and I, I believe, believe about, believe that we can believe about Joseph. It says in Matthew that he was a just man. And we can know he was engaged to be married. He was probably excited about living a life with his young fiance. He would have been by custom preparing a home for them to be living in. And then heaven's plan met his plan and all things changed for Joseph. It says in the Matthew account that he was troubled, that he was deeply troubled. And again, an angel comes on the scene, just as an angel met with Mary. An angel met with Joseph in a dream and told him to not be afraid, told him that his fiance was impregnated with the Son of the Most High and that he was to call him Jesus. And when Joseph woke up from that dream, he said yes to God. And he continued on with what God had told him to do. Joseph's wait would have required a trust in God. And that trust would have said, God, you know better than me. And your plan is better than mine. And I'm going to trust your plans even when I don't understand. 
So I believe Mary had a weight of faith, Joseph had a weight of trust. And then what about the shepherds? I have a really, really vivid Im imagination. And to me, this account of the shepherds is like on full color, big screen at the movies kind of scene. Here the shepherds are in the field and they're just doing what they're supposed to be doing. They've been given a job to steward a resource for themselves and the community by taking care of sheep. It would have been a simple and fairly menial job, but a very important one. But I wonder if they often felt overlooked or undervalued. I mean, what a frightening sight it must have been for all of a sudden angels to appear for light to appear in their field. And I know when I read that scripture, I often read it and I hear it in a kid's voice and like, you know, rocking back and forth, like for unto you in the city of David is the savior is gonna be, because that's what we've heard it in, you know, over and over in kids' plays. But man, the words and the weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, that they held for those shepherds that night and for us as we read the scripture, it's intense. And so the shepherds, they hear the angels say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. That's what they hear. And in this magnificence, they are hearing the announcement that God has come down, that heaven has come down to earth. The word says that they immediately went to find the Christ child. And I believe their search that night would have been full of hope as they hurriedly had to find Jesus and what hope fulfilled the moment that they laid eyes on the baby. As incredible as the wait was for Mary and Joseph, the truth is that the Christmas story started long before this account in the gospel. It wasn't like Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and those in the temple were the only ones that were having to wait this nine month wait for this baby to be born. The children of God, the people of Israel, had been waiting on the birth of their king for hundreds of years. So I want to look at the words from the prophet Isaiah. So if you'll turn to Isaiah with me. These are words that Isaiah was prophesying about, about the coming king and Messiah. He would not have known that it was going to be Jesus Christ of Nazareth, but he did know that the Messiah was coming from the lineage of David. He did know that the Messiah was coming from the lineage of Jesse, who was David's father. So let's see what Isaiah said hundreds of years before we read what we read in, in Luke. Isaiah 7:14 says this, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See the virgin will conceive, have a son, and, his, and name him Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, verse two, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned and those living, on those living in the land of darkness. Verse six, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. And then a couple pages over in chapter 11, Isaiah says this, starting in verse one. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. 
The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. This is about the Messiah. He will have a spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes and he will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. And then look at the peace that's described in verse six. The wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion and the fattened calf will be together and a child will lead them. Only peace and only right order in creation can accomplish that right there. And that we will see when Jesus returns in the future. Because right now we're living in the middle, right, of the already and the not yet. So this is what is to come. When I was reading the book of Isaiah this week, I just about put myself in a, in a state of depression. Because I don't know if you've read um, the book of Isaiah, but I was listening to it while I was reading it. And it's shocking the state that the Israelites found themselves in. And it's shocking the state that we often find ourselves in when we have eyes to see and ears to hear about who we really are, especially if we're living outside of the will of God. And always, always, every prophet in the Old Testament was dealing with an Israel that was walking outside of her calling, if you will. The Old Testament reminds us that God is a covenant-keeping God that he made a promise that he would preserve his people and he always does what he has to do to preserve a remnant and keep his promise as a faithful God, even to a people who are anything but faithful. And that is who our God is. Shameless plug, if you don't understand the Old Testament, there's gonna be an Old Testament equip class in the next semester. There's gonna be an equip class that teaches you how to read the Bible. There's gonna be an equip class that teaches you about the importance of why we read the Bible and pray and have spiritual disciplines in our life. Because I would submit this to you. If you don't understand the Old Testament, you can't understand the New Testament. Because the New Testament really is like just a remix of the Old Testament. It's like just taking the words of the prophets and the words of the teachers and then just adding some current events in there. And although that's a broad stroke and, and possibly irreverent to the canon, I do believe that most of the words of the New Testament are often from the Old Testament. But you only know that if you've studied the Old Testament. It's kind of like current musicians who they just remix old songs from like my generation and they put them out there with a new beat and they say that they're new. I'm like, that's not new. That's just a remix of something I've been singing since I was in the skating rink, like in elementary school. So it's like the New Testament is, is a remix, although obviously it's way more holy and, and important than that. But back to the text of what Isaiah was saying. Here was Israel. She was marked by greed, injustice, selfishness, murder, and disobedience, and a long list of flagrant sins against her God. But God, God always provides a way out, as I said, for his remnant. He provides a way to preserve his promise, and he brings redemption to his people after they have fallen into sin. In this book, we find Isaiah dealing with a stubborn people. Israel had mainly lived in exile and enslaved, and they were always without peace. They were always without peace. They were ruled by mostly corrupt leaders, but the, prophes but the prophet Isaiah was excuse me, the prophet Isaiah foretold of a coming king. 
in the middle of all the mess they were living in, he was saying there is a king coming that will bring peace, that he will rule with justice and mercy. So they were waiting. The prophet knew that there would be a Messiah recognized by those whose hearts were opened. But many people miss the Messiah, and many people still miss the Messiah. I want to look back at an account in Luke that follows the birth of Jesus. So let's look at the story of Simeon. This is in Luke 2, 25 through 35. It says this, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him, what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace, as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory to your people, Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This next picture that's going to go up on the screen is a picture of uh, uh, Ron DeCiani did a painting about Simeon as he embraced the Christ child. It's gonna get up there in a minute. It's one of my favorite, there it is. It's one of my favorite art pieces because I believe what Deciani captures is the joy fulfilled as Simeon held the Christ child and then all around the drawing is a subtle picture of the globe because Jesus was coming as the Messiah to have a kingdom that was gonna rule and reign over all of the earth. Who did Simeon now hold in his arms? I believe that Simeon knew that he was holding the mighty God, the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace, because Simeon would have known the words of Isaiah, because even in Simeon's charge to the parents of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, he is singing Isaiah's song of sorrow. He's quoting Isaiah's words that he would have known from his study. Simeon knew that he held humanity and divinity all wrapped up in this one child. You see, the words of Isaiah would have been known to Simeon, as I said, and although the people were looking for their Messiah to be a conquering political powerhouse, Simeon knew that the words of the prophet were true. He knew that this child king was born to suffer and to turn the world upside down. Whom the children of God in the Old Testament knew as the great I am was now being held in the arms of a faithful servant after coming from the humble beginnings of being born in a stable. The Hebrew children knew God as I am and addressed him as Jehovah. Here's who they knew God to be. Jehovah Mekadishkim, the one who changes and purifies you. Jehovah Shema, the one who is ever present. Jehovah Ra, the good shepherd. Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides. Jehovah Rapha, the one who heals. Jehovah Shalom, the one who brings peace. And Jehovah Sabaoth, the one who defends. But could this child in the arms of Simeon be mighty God? Could he be the divine? And I say yes. He grew up to walk on water. He grew up to deliver people from their sin. He grew up to heal diseases. 
He freed captives. He offered the forgiveness of sin. He raised people from the dead. Jesus is mighty God, and here's what he says to us. I am all that you need. I am on your side, and I understand you. For all that you need, for all that you aren't, for all that you will never be, I am. That's who Jesus says that he is, because he is mighty God. Do you need mighty God to intervene in your life today? Do you have a situation that you know about? Maybe you have a situation that you haven't shared with anybody else and you're hiding it as if somehow it's hidden from the God of heaven. Do you need mighty God to intervene in your life today? Simeon held in his arms the wonderful counselor and more than a therapist, he's a counselor. He brings comfort. He was Israel's consolation. He is your consolation. The scripture tells us that Jesus is well acquainted with our struggles. He was born into poverty and he lived his entire life looked down upon by the educated and the wealthy. When he died, he died alone. Jesus knows our frailty and this makes him uniquely qualified to be our counselor. He is the one who advises us, instructs us, and guides us through life. He empathizes with us, and he has the wisdom to help us. But the wonderful part is not the counsel itself. The wonderful part is the counselor himself. In him we find faith and hope. Do you need to draw near to your counselor today? I hope you all know that you all need counseling. We all need counseling. We all need counseling like currently to go find professionals who've laid their life down and said yes to Jesus for the call in their life to be counselors in the earth. We're in desperate need of counseling, but more than an earthly counselor, we need the wonderful counselor, the one who understands and knows. Is that you today? Do you need to draw near to the counselor? Simeon held in his arms the Prince of Peace, and I will not belabor this point this morning because we're gonna hear about it more next week in Brent's sermon, but I propose this. We might wonder, how can Jesus be the Prince of Peace? Is he really the Prince of Peace? Because this world for sure does not feel like it's peaceful. But here's what I'll tell you this morning. When it says that Jesus is the Prince of Peace and who Isaiah was talking about as the Prince of Peace, this is not initially peace between mankind. Jesus as the Prince of Peace, he brings the peace to reconcile the children back to God so there is peace in their soul eternally. He has captured us for eternity for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see and whose hearts are opened to the truth of God's word as he brings forgiveness to us through his sacrifice. Isaiah 53 says this about the Prince of Peace who would be the suffering servant. In verse two, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from, and he was despised and we did not value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. And the punishment for our peace that was on him, 
Our punishment for our peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. This is the prophetic account of the suffering servant, because Christmas and Easter have to go hand in hand. They have to go hand in hand. The suffering servant sheds his blood for his enemies to please the Father, to make atonement for sin, and to bring eternal healing to the hearts of those that he saves. So back to the photo, to the drawing from Ron DeCiani. Simeon is holding the Prince of Peace. The incredible thing about Jesus as the Prince of Peace fulfilling the prophecy is that we know from Scripture, as I mentioned, the Messiah would come through the lineage of David. This Messiah would be a Jew, but as he stands willingly in place as the final sacrifice for sin, this action and gift of forgiveness would bring universal revelation of Jesus as the Savior of the world to the Jews, Israel, and to the Gentiles, everyone else. So all mankind could know Jesus as the Prince of Peace. Simeon knew that he held the one who would bring peace to the soul of all. Is your soul at peace, I ask you this morning? Are you resting in your salvation? Or are you running from God? I think it's something that we have to consider in all honesty in this season. Are you running from God? Are you resting in your salvation? And lastly, Simeon held in the Christ child the everlasting father. And what a juxtaposition to hold a tiny little baby and here he is the everlasting father. I held a newborn baby this week. Man, they are dependent on everything. They're just like this pitiful, pitiful little thing that just is so dependent. And here in Jesus is a man who is fully God and fully human, coming as a baby. That's who our God is. It's a juxtaposition that he is our everlasting father. But Jesus will show us what it means for a father to be perfectly present. Not a father who's never satisfied. Not a father who's a ticking time bomb. And you have to wonder what kind of eggshells you need to walk on that day because you don't know which father you might be encountering during which circumstance. Not a workaholic father. And not a father who is distant physically or emotionally but a father who is perfectly present. The word says that our father God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. I don't know what the word father does for you this morning. I do know enough about humanity to know that the word father does all kinds of different things in our hearts when we hear it. Do you need to know the everlasting father? The answer is yes. Do you know the everlasting father? something you have to settle in your soul. The Father wants to draw near to you. Simeon had waited a long time to behold and hold God. And I can hardly dwell on this image and this painting without getting tearful. Watching someone who'd waited for so long and waited well and waited to see the one whom he lived for. And he tells God when he holds him, you can now take me. I have seen your salvation. Trust, faith, and hope had marked Simeon's life. Now, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier about Christmas carols, but they're not my favorite genre of music. They never have been. It's not a new thing in my life. It's just they haven't been. But I will say this. A renewed love for theologically sound Christmas carols has hit my heart this season. As I read these next words, and now you've heard from Isaiah and you've heard me read the Gospels, I want you to hear the beauty in this Christmas carol 
and him, come thou long expected Jesus. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our hearts and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. It's beautiful to me. Do we wait on Jesus with the same longing as we hear in this hymn? Do we wait on Jesus with the same anticipation that we see in Simeon? Do you realize that he is your consolation, which means that he is your comfort? Do you realize that he is the only one and the only thing worth waiting on? Every other waiting will turn up with you being in want. It'll all turn up empty. I wanna leave you with a very brief practical application this morning, again from the words of Isaiah. It says this about waiting. Verse 28, do you not know and have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth? He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary and young men may stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary and they will walk and not faint. Different translations of this passage have those who wait on the Lord, those who hope in the Lord, those who trust in the Lord. So I propose to you this morning the answer to this question, how do we obediently wait? How do we properly wait? Or is there a wait that brings glory to God? Yes, there is. It's one that is full of trust, hope, and faith. All of these actions speak to having an anticipation and expectation on something. So I ask you this morning, as I did just a few moments ago, where is your expectation and your anticipation placed? We aren't placing our trust in an earthly system. We aren't putting our hope in the next paycheck or the next circumstance that might change, the next conversation that might lead to what we think is peace. Our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. We are not putting our faith or trust in anyone else but Jesus if we wanna find ourselves walking in the fullness of God. Our strength is renewed and our hearts bolstered when we place our faith in God. But our waiting has to be active, just like we see in Simeon, or as the words from Isaiah indicate that there is an action of running and walking and being and doing while we wait. But it's not a striving, our wait is putting our full weight in God. Our W-A-I-T weight is putting our full W-E-I-G-H-T weight, leaning back into God, because he has peace for us, not as the world gives. He has peace for us that doesn't make sense. I wanna end with a story about Henry Nouwen, who is one of my heroes. I read my first book by him this year. He was a Catholic priest who died suddenly of a heart attack. He reminds me a great deal of Mother Teresa. He just loved people beautifully. And in some part of his life, when he was going through a soul searching and trying to find something to settle into that would bring him recreational peace, he got enamored with this trapeze troupe called the Flying Rodleys. 
and the last book by him that's co-written with another woman, or with a woman, because he was already dead by the time the book got finished. It's his relational building with the Flying Rodleys. And as he came into a conversation at some point with the leader of the Flying Rodleys, and his name was Rodley, which is hilarious, they named it that, he was talking about the catcher and the flyer of the troop. All this work goes into like a 10-minute performance. And this is what he said. One day I was sitting with Rodley, the leader of the troop, in his caravan talking about flying, and he said this, as a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The public might think that I am the great star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there for me with split-second precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him in a long jump. Well, how does it work, I asked. The secret, Rodley said, is that the flyer does nothing and the catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, I have simply to stretch out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me safely up over the catch bar. You do nothing, I said, surprised. Nothing, Rodley repeated. The worst thing the flyer can do is to try to catch the catcher. I am not supposed to catch Joe if Joe's, it's Joe's task to catch me because if I grab Joe's wrists, I might break them or if he might break mine and that would be the end for both of us. A flyer must fly and a catcher must catch and the flyer must trust with outstretched arms that the catcher will be there for him. When Rodley said this with so much conviction, Jesus flashed through my mind. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, because dying is trusting in the catcher. And we die to ourselves, don't we? Don't be afraid, God would say to us. Remember that you are the beloved child of God. He will be there when you make your long jump. Don't try to grab him, because he will grab you. Just stretch out your arms and hands and trust, trust trust. So are you waiting this way? Do you have a trust, trust, trust in your Savior who came for you, who fulfilled the words of the prophet hundreds of years later by being born into humble beginnings so that one day he may die and spill his blood, pay the penalty of your sin, satisfying your debt so that you can just surrender and trust, trust, trust in what he says is true. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.